Imagine, Double Take listeners, that scientists and engineers could develop electrical wires capable of shedding not a single watt of energy between the power generator and the end of its journey, all at ordinary room temperatures and easy-to-achieve pressure. Now, let's just compare that scenario for a second with what's happening today, where you're losing 8 to 15% of the power generated by the power plant by the time it gets to the consumer with today's wiring technology. And think about the ultra-powerful magnets to propel super high-speed trains at low cost to new levels of safety, or vastly greener, more efficient engines for air travel. How about small nuclear power plants operating at a significantly lower cost than possible today, or spectacular applications hitherto unimagined, such as the potential of the holy grail of material science known to many tech nerds on social media as room temperature superconductors. Yes, it turns out that 2023, after decades of trial and error, fits and starts, that very tech nerd world has been rocked by not one, but two putative breakthroughs that purported to have found the room temperature superconductor holy grail. One of these was by a team at the University of Rochester in the United States, and another by a group at an obscure South Korean startup called the Quantum Energy Research Center. And so given all the hubbub, we here at Newton Investment Management thought we'd take a dive into the superconductor pool and attempt to separate wheat from chaff, fact from fiction, and give investors a roadmap to why all this science matters to capital allocators. And when, if ever, we can expect the explosive advances in technology and science that room temperature superconductors promise to become a reality. That's right. And I'm Rafe Lewis, head of Newton's specialist investment research teams. I'm Jack Encarnacio, investigative analyst here at Newton. Welcome to Double Take, a podcast that brings you expert voices from beyond the four walls of Wall Street so you can better navigate the themes, news, and forces shaping markets today and tomorrow. Hey, before we get into it, as usual, we're going to make our shameless request. Help shape the Double Take podcast yourself. Subscribe, leave a review, spread the word. We love our listeners, and hopefully it's not unrequited. (laughs) And now on to superconductors. Joining us here on Double Take today is Dr. Ina Vishik, an associate professor of physics at the University of California, Davis, whose laboratory studies emergent electronic phenomena in quantum materials. And needless to say, as a keen observer of all the sturm and drang concerning room temperature superconductors, Dr. Vishik got her undergraduate and doctoral degrees at Stanford University, did her postdoctoral work at MIT, and has been at UC Davis since 2016, spending much of her time working to better understand superconductors. So in that spirit, Ina Vishik, it really is a pleasure to have you on Double Take. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, Ina, this is terrific. Thank you so much. You know, I think Double Take has a fairly sophisticated following. But I'm going to go out on a limb and wager that many of them are not necessarily well-versed in the material sciences or the ins and outs of electromagnetism, quantum energy, uh, even just electricity for that matter. So do you mind kind of giving us the Reader's Digest explanation of kind of what a superconductor is and why so many in your field and beyond are, are chasing the grail? Yeah, so a superconductor has a number of of characteristic observables. So the most well-known one is that it loses its resistance to current flow. So basically, you can transmit electrical current without any losses, as you mentioned earlier. This property onsets at some critical temperature called TC, 
And when we talk of, for example, room temperature superconductors, we mean ones where the superconducting properties have already onset by room temperature. So that's one property. Another property of a superconductor is that it expels its magnetic field. In the context of superconductivity, this phenomenon is called the Meissner effect. And more generally, when a substance expels its magnetic field, it's called diamagnetism. And those two properties are kind of the usual superconducting phenomena that people talk about. But more than that, a defining characteristic of a superconductor is that it is an example of a collective large-scale quantum phenomenon. So one of the reasons that, that superconductors can do these amazing things is you have a cooperation with many, many electrons. They're all on the same page doing the, the same thing uh, to produce these remarkable and useful properties. Okay, that's that's actually an excellent uh, you know explanation, and and I'm sure plenty of our listeners have heard of semiconductors. I would like to think, and so my understanding is, you know, for the true layperson, that you've got kind of insulators like glass, you've got uh, conductors like copper, and that's what we're sending most electricity over now. Uh, then you've got semiconductors, which are kind of uh, you know a hybrid and excellent for you know all kinds of chip making and that kinds of stuff. And then here we are at superconductors. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but all the superconductors we found to date tend to really only work, quote unquote, at some ridiculously low temperature, correct? So I guess it, it depends on your, your definition of ridiculously low. So in your introduction, you gave some, some caveats about superconductivity. So one of the caveats that, that you gave was room temperature. So that's sort of one definition of a temperature that's not ridiculously low. But we have confirmed superconductors at kind of a range of temperatures. So we have some that work below one Kelvin, some that work on the order of 10 Kelvin. Um, we have a class of superconductors that actually work above liquid nitrogen temperatures, which is an important benchmark because liquid nitrogen is a very, very, very cheap cryogen. And then we also have superconductors that require very high pressure that operate at even higher temperatures. So as far as results that are actually believed by the scientific community, I would say that value is on the order of 200 to 250 Kelvin. So not room temperature, but kind of maybe there's a place in Siberia that reaches uh, that temperature. Wow. So maybe you could give us, um, Doctor, a similar uh, sort of lay of the land for just what's so buzzy and interesting or what was so promising about the aforementioned Rochester and South Korean announcements. Our quick scan of the web suggests that scientists like you weren't exactly ready to declare victory over these findings. Can you help orient us there? Yes, I would put these two results in very different categories, very different reasons why the scientific community was not ready to get behind them. So regarding the Rochester work, that is someone sort of working within the system, let's say within academia. But that group had previously had to retract an earlier claim of room temperature superconductivity because of essentially, un, I wouldn't say unorthodox methods, but kind of methods of, re of removing the background from the data that 
were not valid. And there were other prominent retractions by the group as well involving potential data manipulation and additionally plagiarism of a lot of the PI's thesis as well as like snippets of their website that are taken. Oh dear. Yeah, so so very serious allegations of fraud regarding that group, probably the biggest since the famous Schoen scandal in Bell Labs 20 some odd years ago. So that is the reason that the scientific community was skeptical about that. And as we're recording this, the particular claim for March of this year is still being investigated, but the paper in Nature Magazine has sort of an editor's warning uh, posted on it. So so that's uh, the situation there. The more recent situation with LK99. That's the South Koreans, correct? That's the South Korean group. Yeah, exactly. So that was a very interesting phenomenon. So LK99 is sort of a name given to this purported superconducting material. And it was a, a name chosen. The LK is the initials, I think, of these researchers' PhD advisor who has since passed away. And the 99 is that in the year 99 was like the first time that this LK guy, their PhD advisor, had seen first hints of of the phenomenon. So basically, this was a report of room temperature superconductor from a group in South Korea. They posted their results on a preprint server called Archive, which all of the scientific uh, researchers in physics use very regularly. And, you know, just because something is posted there, it doesn't mean we don't take it seriously. And they claimed superconductivity, not only at room temperature, but like at the boiling point of water. So it was a very big claim. And for people that study this stuff, we see claims of high and room temperature superconductors popping up sort of without context every couple of years on on archive. They're called unidentified superconducting objects. And the initial report of this superconductivity, it really took off on social media. And that was maybe one of the reasons that the the scientific community paid more attention. So from the start, you know, from the just looking at the data in that in that preprint, it did not appear to be made up or fraudulent from what we could tell. But there were certain hints that it wasn't really a superconductor, namely the resistance at or the resistivity as well did not go to zero in what they purported was the superconducting region. So that's kind of a a deal breaker there. Because that is the core attraction of a superconductor, right? That it sheds no energy, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So the way that the axes of the graph were, the resistivity was just so high above the purported transition temperature that it looked like it went to zero. But if you actually digitized the graph and and figured out what value it went to, not only did it not go to zero, but it achieved a resistivity that was at least 10 times worse than copper. So it was actually 10 times worse than the 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 status quo, let's say. All right. Well that's that's a very good uh primer on uh some of the competitive pressures in the hunt for room temperature semiconductors, but uh, you know, or superconductors rather. 
So I, I guess maybe, you know, we we get to the point of asking why why is it so difficult to find a material or, you know, whatever alloy of materials that can be superconducting at room temperatures and under normal kind of pressure scenarios? Yeah. So there's nothing in physics that says that room temperature superconductivity cannot exist. So the fact that it's not disallowed is kind of one reason that that people keep searching. A reason that it is difficult is so I'll I'll answer this question in in two ways. So so one way is a little bit more more technical. So I'll start with the more technical way. The more technical way is that Oftentimes, when you have a material that wants to become superconducting, it only wants to become superconducting relatively weakly. Alternately, it might want to become a magnet or maybe an unusual type of semiconductor or whatever. So just the tendency to want to become superconducting in a material is usually weaker than the tendency to want to become something else. And case in point, you know, we have lots of magnets at room temperature. So iron, nickel, cobalt all become magnets at at higher than room temperature, but we don't yet have room temperature superconductors. So that's one way of thinking about it that's maybe a little bit technical. Another way of thinking about it is, so I mentioned that in a superconductor, all of the electrons or like a large subset of them need to be on the same page. All the electrons that would normally be contributing to to resistivity, they need to be all working cooperatively. So when you raise the temperature of, of any material, the atoms are jostling around more and there's just a lot more disorder in that regard. So you should you can think of it in terms of trying to link up hands with your friends in a room where everyone is standing still versus in a room where like it's a concert or a mosh pit. It's just more a bouncy house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's much more difficult to all get on the same page when there's a lot of action around. Well, that's great. So I wonder, what are you seeing? Is this a field dominated, advances dominated by academia, or are private researchers, private enterprises also involved in the race to find this stuff? You know, what's the sort of reasonable expectation of if this day comes when superconductivity is is confirmed, where, where it's likely to come from? Yeah. So superconductivity research today is almost exclusively in the realm of academia. The reason being well, there's there's a number of reasons. So one reason is that it is a fairly rare occurrence to find a new type of superconductor. There's not really a recipe that you can follow or that historically has been followed. And because of that lack of roadmap, it's sort of hard to, to put timetables on superconductivity research. So from the standpoint of academia, this is fine. You know, research in superconductors often yields materials that do other interesting things that allow us to learn fundamental truths. So this lack of roadmap is is one reason. And another reason is that just historically, 
the uh, monetizability of superconductors has been relatively limited. So the first superconductor was mercury. It superconducts with liquid helium, and it was discovered to be superconducting in 1911. And similar types of superconductors are nowadays used in MRI. And that's pretty much the only place they're used as far as products that the, the average person might encounter at some point in their, their everyday life. So the, the limited applicability of superconductors that we've had so far is another reason that primarily academia studies these materials. Well, at the risk of uh, undercutting the drama of this uh, podcast episode, I may as well just cut to it and ask you, do you believe in your lifetime, you look pretty young to me, but I have no idea, I don't want to guess, let's say in the next 50 years, right, next 100 years, do you anticipate that there will be a breakthrough here and we will have some kind of room temperature superconducting material out there that could fundamentally change everything from the you know electrical grid to transport? So I would say that one of two scenarios are equally likely. So I think it's quite possible that we'll find a room temperature superconductor. I also think that it's possible that we will put liquid nitrogen superconductors into greater use. I mean, after all, a lot of people, myself included, have uh, explosive gas coming to their house. Um, there's a whole infrastructure for that. So comparatively, liquid nitrogen is somewhat benign. Very good. So when we talk about the, the need for this super high pressure, I gather a key element to the room temperature superconductor conundrum is pressure, meaning right now you really have to apply massive amounts of it to make superconductors work effectively. Is there any meaningful research going into making that pressure application itself more efficient or somehow, I don't know, avoiding the need for super high pressure altogether? Yes. So, all right. So let me give a little bit of a background. So the the super high pressure and this caveat that people need to add nowadays of ambient pressure, if they want something useful, comes about because of the type of superconductor that to this date is giving us the highest transition temperatures. So these superconductors are compounds involving a lot of hydrogen. And it was actually predicted back in the 1960s that hydrogen, so hydrogen metal, atomic hydrogen metal, I should say, so H, not H2, uh, would be a room temperature superconductor. The only problem is that hydrogen is a gas. And to make it be a metal, you need to really, really compress it. Such compression, at least outside of a shockwave scenario, has not been realized. So that line of research dates back to the 60s. But what was discovered in the previous decade was that you don't need to use pure hydrogen to get the very similar results. You could use compounds that just contain a lot of hydrogen and compress those to become metals. So the first such breakthrough was in compressing a stinky gas, hydrogen sulfide, and that yielded a 200 Kelvin superconductor, which at that time was the highest transition temperature. And later on, people also like did the synthesis of the material under high pressure as well, and were able to achieve around 250 Kelvin, I think in lanthanum H10 or something like that. So the idea is that these very light elements, they have very high 
frequency vibrations, which are good for a certain type of superconductivity. And the only limitations is that materials containing a lot of hydrogen tend to not be metals, which is another starting ingredient needed for that type of superconductivity. So there's sort of two avenues out of this conundrum where you need the high pressure to make these things metallic. So one avenue out of it is that there appear to be different types of superconductors that operate by different mechanisms. So this mechanism where hydrogen is good, if you can make it metallic, is one type of superconductor. There's other types of superconductors where what makes all of the electrons cooperate together has nothing to do with really fast atomic vibrations. So one avenue out of that is just looking at completely different types, mechanisms of superconductors. An alternate mechanism out of of that high pressure conundrum is perhaps to exploit a line of research that is being separately pursued outside the realm of superconductivity. So another sort of energy problem is hydrogen. So so for fuel cells, you want hydrogen. The problem is hydrogen tanks attached to your car, for example. I mean, these things exist, but but it's a pain. So people have been looking at, instead of using like compressed gas, putting hydrogen inside the interstitials of other materials. These are like spaces between atoms. Hydrogen is a really small atom, so it can fit in between spaces. So there's a line of research there, not related to superconductivity, trying to cram a bunch of hydrogen into other materials. And that might be another avenue to use hydrogen without having the material itself be under high pressure. Wow, that is uh, that is fascinating. It sounds like this is a pretty long and arduous road involving multiple different groups in different uh, disciplines and sub-disciplines. So, but, you know, it sounded like you thought there is a chance, right? I mean, you're saying there's a chance when it comes to the breakthrough of uh, of room temperature superconductors. So I guess, you know, what I wonder is for us investor types, we're always wondering, okay, what is the the distance in terms of time between someone making that breakthrough and widespread application, or at least meaningful application within the economy, within the industrial world, you name it. How long is it going to take once someone finds a decent room temperature superconductor to when we're seeing, you know, a lot of these kind of high-speed magnetic rails and green, you know, jet engines and, you know, perfect grids, uh, you know, electrical utilities, that kind of thing? Good. So... I'll give a couple of of examples or just one example, maybe. So the most recent historical example of such a breakthrough was the discovery of high temperature superconductivity in copper oxides, which happened in 1986. So those are the superconductors that operate at liquid nitrogen temperatures. And in the intervening 30 plus years, we do not have really widespread use of of those materials. What has happened is that there has been a lot of engineering to try to maximize the amount of current that can flow through these materials because just because you have a superconductor, it doesn't mean you can flow a lot of current through it and maintain superconductivity. There's also been a lot of work in trying to get around the fact that these are brittle and you want to make wires out of them. Basically, what they've come up with 
is a kind of system where the lack of ductility is mitigated by basically making a tape instead of a wire out of these. So the actual superconductor is very thin and anything thin enough can can bend. So the ductility issue was solved by making a tape and a proper layered structure to have the superconductor adhere properly to the tape. And then this tape is wrapped around a core which carries the liquid nitrogen to, to cool the thing. And then on the outside is, is some insulation. So the overall product is probably not much thicker than, than a typical transmission cable. So basically in the 30 plus years, there's a product that has been made that is potentially usable. But as far as I'm aware, it doesn't have any like grid scale uses to, to this state. Well, let's say, Dr. Vishik, that you and others in the research world uh, n- never make it to the room temperature superconducting promise land. Um, do we have other shots on goal, so to speak, using perhaps other technologies to achieve the same end? Yeah, absolutely. So the the beautiful thing about materials physics research is that there tend to be many solutions to the same problem. So, and sometimes the the solution isn't even a material solution. But just just as an example, so like you you started off mentioning the eight to fifteen percent electricity loss due to transmission. So this is something that can and presumably is mitigated by other sources of energy. And there's various renewable and hopefully nuclear sources coming online that mitigate against against that. Uh, For achieving other attributes of, of superconductors, some of them, so for every attribute of a superconductor, there are substitutes that are, let's say, either as good or almost as good. So like to give an example for the property of the the zero resistance, there are ways to achieve something similar at short length scales. For example, if you want to apply the zero resistance in a computing context. Uh, For the expulsion of magnetic field, there's actually many materials that when you apply a magnetic field, they magnetize oppositely. Uh, It's called diamagnetism, and it's pretty common. For the sort of more hidden quantum phenomena that all of these electrons are working together cooperatively, the application of that that is most commonly utilized, or that is, I guess, most promising nowadays is for quantum computing involving low temperature superconductors, like D-Wave uses this kind of setup. So for that, so this type of quantum cooperative phenomena, it can also be found, for example, in certain types of very cold and dilute gases called a Bose-Einstein condensate. And there's other sort of quantum computing products that are essentially using uh, that. So there's sort of other partial solutions to many of the attributes of of superconductors. And I would say in the process of researching uh, superconductors, people more often than discovering superconductors, they discover other materials that might do other useful things, for instance, have other useful, might have useful magnetic properties as an example. 
Well, it's funny you say that because uh, we have been talking a lot here at Newton about these new obesity drugs, and those actually began as uh, diabetes treatments. So uh, sometimes there's an entirely uh, different effect of the research, and uh, it can make someone money. Well, Dr. Ina Vishik of UC, Cal- uh, UC Davis, uh, fantastic to talk to you and to get some of your physical knowledge on superconductors and maybe some of the other avenues we might have to fixing all that ails us in our technology and electrical uh, infrastructure. Thank you so much for joining Double Take. Thank you. It was great talking to you. financial promotion for institutional clients only issued by Newton Investment Management North America LLC NIMNA or the firm. NIMNA is a registered investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission SEC and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation BNY Mellon. The firm was established in 2021, comprised of equity and multi-asset teams from an affiliate, Mellon Investments Corporation. The firm is part of the group of affiliated companies that individually or collectively provide investment advisory services under the brand Newton or Newton Investment Management. Newton currently includes NIMNA and Newton Investment Management Limited, NIM, and Newton Investment Management Japan Limited, NIMJ. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of NIMNA, which are subject to change and which NIMNA does not undertake to update. This publication or any portion thereof may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of material only. This document may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstances in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this publication is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by NIMNA. NIMNA makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. ESG analysis refers to a range of internal and external qualitative and quantitative research. Newton manages a variety of strategies. Whether and how ESG considerations are assessed or integrated into Newton's strategies depends on the asset classes and or the particular strategy involved, as well as the research and investment approach of each Newton firm. ESG may not be considered for each individual investment, and where ESG is considered, other attributes of an investment may outweigh ESG considerations when making investment decisions. Analysis of themes may vary depending on the type of security, investment rationale, and investment strategy. Newton will make investment decisions that are not based on themes and may conclude that other attributes attributes of an investment outweigh the thematic structure the security has been assigned to. If distributed in the UK, EMEA, Australia, New Zealand, this podcast is issued by Newton Limited and may be deemed a financial promotion. Newton Limited is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E20, 1JN, in the conduct of investment business. Registered in England, number 01371973. NIM is also registered as as investment advisors with the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, to offer investment advisory services in the United States. If distributed in Canada, this podcast is issued by either Newton Limited, which is availing itself of the International Advisor Exemption, IAE, in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. 
The IAE is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirements, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations, or NIMNA, which is availing itself of the IAE in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Manitoba. The IAE is in compliance with the National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirements, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations.